Hello and welcome to a special episode of Black Lives Texas, a podcast from the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis, also known as IUPRA. I am your guest host, Farah Muscadin, Director of the City of Austin's Office of Police Oversight. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of an online panel hosted by IUPRA about policing and schools. This Opportunity Forum offers a look at how Black youth are disproportionately impacted by policing in school and what that means for Austin and the greater Central Texas community. The panel includes Brian Oakes, Chief Equity Officer, City of Austin, Dr. Kevin Foster, School Board Member, Austin Independent School District, Andrew Hairston, Director, Justice Education Project, Texas Appleseed, Natasha Daniels, Ron Rock Black Parents Association, as well as myself. You will first hear from Dr. Coakley explain the purpose of the forum, as well as some informational context from our UPRA staff members about the research currently being done before the start of the panel discussion. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dr. Kevin Coakley, and I am the director of the Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis and professor of educational psychology and African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas. Welcome to the event, Policing in Schools, the Disproportionate Impact on Black Youth, sponsored by the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis and UT Austin's Opportunity Forum. The Opportunity Forum is an interdisciplinary collaboration of University of Texas faculty working to foster the expansion of equitable opportunities for low-income Texans. Through applied research, educational forums, and experiential learning opportunities, the forum engages the university and community leaders in developing inclusive strategies to improve low-income Texans' access to economic opportunities and to foster stronger and more equitable communities. The Institute for Urban Policy Research and Analysis was developed in 2011 through the collaborative efforts of the Texas Legislative Black Caucus, the John Warfield Center for African and African-American Studies, and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Development of IUPRA was seen as an important method for understanding the impact of public policies on Black people and communities, especially in Texas. As an interdisciplinary policy research institute, IUPRA's mission is to strengthen Black communities, promote social justice, and combat anti-Black racism using a racial equity framework. So we welcome you all here today to this event. We are looking forward to having a robust discussion. And now I will turn it over to Annika Olson. Thank you, Dr. Coakley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Opportunity Forum. We are so glad that you are here to share your time with us. The purpose of our discussion today will be to call attention to disparities in school discipline endured by Black students in public education. Several months ago, Mira, our wonderful intern, and myself wrote an issue brief on the issue of law enforcement in schools across Texas. So please feel free to take a look at it on our website. We'd like to provide um, a little background information and introduce the topic to you briefly before handing it over to our panelists. Thank you, Anika. Given our research, we know that Black students in Texas are approximately two times more likely to experience in-school suspensions and nearly three times more likely to experience out-of-school suspensions. 
the proportion of black students admitted to either alternative or juvenile justice education programs is 10 and 7% more than their white counterparts respectively. School discipline is also of particular concern to black students and families in AISD. Black students make up 7.3% of the student body, but 15% of all students in both in-school and out-of-school suspensions. Black students comprise more than 19% of total students referred to law enforcement. Black students were involved in an average of 30% of the use of forces cases over the past five years. Thank you, Mara. So clearly growing evidence regarding persistent disparities in school discipline poses serious implications for Black youth. And this is true not only in Austin, but across the state of Texas and the entire country. At AUPRA, we've been looking at ways to address this issue via community engagement and policy change. And we look forward to our collaboration with the Opportunity Forum to explore potential solutions further. So thank you so much to our panelists for joining us and we look forward to the discussion. I would like to introduce our moderator, Brian Oakes, who is the Chief Equity Officer for the City of Austin. Brian is responsible for working with city leadership and local communities to create an equity framework and facilitate dialogue and organizational practices that support the development and adoption of equity as a shared value. He serves as the technical expert in addressing equity as it is applied to citywide policies, programs, practices, and budget decisions with an overall vision to make Austin the most livable city for all. Brian earned his Bachelor of Science in Political Science from the University of Houston and his Master's of Public Administration from Texas State University. I'll hand it over to Brian. Thank you, Annika, and uh, welcome everybody to today's um, Opportunity Forum. And uh, just a shout out to the IUPRA team for this really timely conversation around law enforcement and schools. And um, I can't believe that they actually sort of picked me to moderate a panel for them, <laughs> but I feel honored to do so. And um, I wanted to say before we, before we got into this panel uh, discussion that I would be uh, remiss to really not talk about uh, what's currently happening in our nation as it relates to uh, issues around policing, uh, especially the over-policing of our black community. And uh, I say that this conversation is timely because uh, actually I think hours before uh, the Chauvin verdict um, was determined, uh, we had uh, young, 16-year-old black girl, Makaya Bryant, uh, who was killed by police officer Nicholas Reardon in Columbus, Ohio. And just on that day alone, there were actually six uh, people across our nation that were actually killed by police uh, on that very day of the Chauvin verdict. And so it just goes to show you, I think a lot of people in that time talked about um, that verdict looked like justice, but it didn't look like justice to me. I would say that it was accountability uh, for that one incident, but the fact that uh, these deaths continue to happen tells me that we have not reached justice and there's still a lot of work to do. And I think one of the things that I feel really hopeful about today is one, um, the courage of IUPRA to really sort of bring this to the forefront as a discussion for an opportunity forum. And I think as we get into the panel today, uh, we have some amazing folks who are doing a lot of amazing work across Texas uh, to really sort of help us get to uh, this issue. And with that, I'll get us started by uh, introducing some of our panelists, but I'm gonna let them go a little bit sort of deeper in terms of telling you a little bit more about themselves. Uh, we have Dr. Kevin Foster, who's the Associate Chair 
for the Black Studies Department at the University of Texas. Uh, we have Natasha Daniels, who's the Chief Education Navigator at uh, Round Rock Black Parents Association. And uh, most recently, so props to Natasha uh, for being a, a new doctoral student for the Education Policy Program at University of Texas. So a lot of Black excellence on display today. Uh, we also have Andrew Reginald Harrison, who's the director of the Education Justice Project at Texas Appleseed. And we also have one of my colleagues from the city of Austin, Farrah Muscadin, who is our director of the Office of Police Oversight. And I'm gonna tell you all that I have a little bit of a different style. And um, I believe that sometimes when we talk about all the issues and, um, and we look at the data and we look at the numbers, sometimes um, we don't always sort of check in with uh, the trauma and sometimes the pain and the hardship and then the joy when you have wins uh, that's represented in this complete body of work. And so as we kick things off today, uh, I'm gonna ask our panelists to model some brevity because I know y'all have done a lot of amazing things in your career but I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. And my question to get us going is, what's your soul color for today? Or what color is resonating uh, from you today? So my color for today uh, is earthy brown uh, because I feel really rooted that we're having this conversation. And I also feel that we're planting some seeds in the roots to really transform and create change uh, in our city, but also in our state. So that's my soul color for today. And so I'm going to kick us off uh, with, let's go with Dr. Foster. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what's your soul color for today? Um, I'm an educational anthropologist by training. Uh, so my work is about minority student achievement, Black student achievement in particular, but and really all students achievement in the context of diversity. I currently sit on the Austin School Board, which is the opportunity space I occupy and my color is black and always black. All right. All right. How about Farah? Do you want to go next? Sure. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Farah Muscadin, Director of the Office of Police Oversight. Um, thank you, Tariupra, for inviting me into this conversation. Um, I do appreciate it. Um, so my office provides oversight over the Austin Police Department only, um, and so we are the place that takes complaints and also thank yous for Austin um, Police Department. We are, take a very holistic approach to oversight, so we look at policy. We're very much involved and have been tasked with rewriting APD policy and community engagement, and so it's very important when you work in oversight to have the support um, and the connection directly to the community, and not only the community as a whole, but the community most negatively impacted by law enforcement. So we take that very, very seriously. And um, I, I'm going to have to share with my brother here, Dr. Foster, I'm Black, Blackly Black, Black every day. I'm Haitian Black, and that will always be my color. I live it, I breathe it, and I will die it. So that is my color. All right, all right, all right. Natasha, how about you? Hi everyone, I'm Natasha Daniels and um, in previous seasons of my life, I was an educator for the past 15 years. Uh, I was a science teacher, special education teacher, technology coach, and most recently assistant principal. And, but the most important role I think I occupy is that of a black mother. 
of three beautiful black children. And um, I am a member of Round Rock Black Parents Association. And we are just a group of parents who are really just um, fighting a fight that we don't wanna fight to make sure our kids get what, what they are owed by the public education system. Um, and I'd say my color, uh, I'd have to say it's gold. I recently have gotten into my, my first venture of uh, the legislative process and in advocating for the Crown Act. And I've been at the Capitol um, with uh, Representative Bowers and I, it's just gold. Like my, I'm Nigerian, my main name is Falaran, which means walk with majesty. So I feel like the gold is really shining through for me tonight. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, you're making me think about one of my favorite artists, Jill Scott, living life like it's golden. Andrew, definitely last, last but definitely not least, uh, Andrew, how about your check-in? Good afternoon, everyone. It's such an honor to be in this space with this esteemed panel. Yeah, I'm Andrew Hive, and I direct the Education Justice Project at Texas Appleseed. Texas Appleseed is a public interest justice center based in Austin, but we work across the state. And specifically in our education justice work, we're focused on dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline and securing equal educational opportunities for historically underserved young Texans. I'm a lawyer by training, and we'll talk more about how I came into this policy work as a focus for using my law degree. But, you know, it's been a real honor to over my career to focus on fighting against criminalization of young black and brown children across Texas, across the United States. And it feels especially timely after the year that we've had. You know, I agree on the colors that have been spoken about black and gold. But I also say green. So we just commemorated Earth Day. And I'll talk more about how prison industrial complex abolition informs my work. And this future that we're building will be black, but it will also be green, right? And the environment will be kind of centered in how we built this new world that young black children deserve. Yeah. So, Andrew, you created the, the perfect segue. Uh, for the first part of our discussion for the day, you dropped the, the, the term, the school to prison pipeline. And I wanted to actually start us off, especially for the audience that's listening. Um, when you say school to prison pipeline, talk to us about uh, what is that phenomena in our schools and then how does that play out in Texas? Yeah, my running definition of it is the school to prison pipeline is a racist and oppressive system that disproportionately burdens historically underserved groups of young people, black and brown children, LGBTQ young people and kids with disabilities and pushes them into contact with the criminal legal system based on age appropriate routine behavior in their schools. So I think particularly over the 21st century, we have seen this militarization of schools that has taken place. We can kind of think about the post Columbine era We can speak about what happened in the 20th century, but Columbine really ushered in this era of militarized schools, of school policing, of austerity for young people. And really when they get to be about in the sixth grade or so, it could be earlier, but when they get to be about 11 or 12 years old, these systems really bear down upon them in their schools and might be some operation, usually of school police officers who identify them, say that they are acting out, willfully defiant, and then they continue to get railroaded into this criminal legal system as a result of their conduct. 
for Dr. Fletcher and Natasha, how do you all see this really play out uh, at the school district level? So talk to me in terms of around what you see uh, for schools and their investment uh, into sort of police officers or, or what they call SROs. So what does it look like on the ground and what have y'all experienced then? So I, I really have to go into detail about our budget, right? We talk about budgets being moral, moral documents. Our police officers right now, which side note, Round Rock ISD just uh, created a police department in the middle of Black Lives Matter movement, funded their own, I believe it was like 1.3 million, I can't remember the exact number, but um, our police officers make 135% of market value for, for our school resource officers, while our teachers make 101% of market value. So I think that can show you where, where we're, what we're valuing, right? We value a carceral education system over educating our kids. And I think um, when we say like what it looks like boots on the ground, um, I know like I was a co-sponsor of a black student union at a high school and a middle school. And I see um, the SROs would harass our children all the time. Like at Round Rock High School, there was a student who said um, he went to the bathroom and he was headed back to class and the SRO was like, you smell like weed. And that was a reason to stop and detain him, like to, not to detain, but to, to question him further about what have you been doing? And he's like, I'm in class. And this is a student who is like top of his class, you know, like honor student. And so the, 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 um, I don't know, the, the incidences are happening and, it, and it's very real and it has a huge impact. Like even my own child who is very compliant, very quiet, my daughter, she's 14. She told me that ever since she, she noticed the SRO, she was like, I try my best to stay away because I don't know what's going to happen. Dr. Foster, do you want to elaborate on that? Especially as it relates to, to Austin independent school district? No, let me, let me, let me, let me hold my piece for a couple minutes. You know, so one of the things that um, I'll uh, sometimes, you know, there's a term devil's advocate. I say sometimes in racism, the devil don't need no advocate, but I'll play it a little bit today uh, because I know that there's a, there's a contingency of school administrators and also parents who say uh, we need these SROs on campus. Uh, we need this presence of law enforcement to keep our schools, you know, safe. And so how do you all respond to the sentiment of folks who actually believe that schools need to have this presence of officers on the campus? And, and, and you know, that's a real contingency out there um, who get concerned when we talk about, you know, options to really eliminating these positions or this focus of officers on campus. So how do y'all respond to that? Uh, uh, so, I'll, I'll jump in there. And, um, and this actually weighs on me a, a little bit in that there are, just as you say, Brian, there's constituencies that say, well, we need this to feel safe, et cetera. Um, but then that runs counter often to the data about what actually happens when these bodies are present. So you have to go step back and say, are they there for safety? And if they're there for safety, let's define safety. And then let's have an accurate assessment of whether people are actually more safe with this um, presence. Um, in AISD, 
what I'm seeing are some officers who are absolutely amazing and wonderful. And they are like go-to folks for kids on the particular campus. That raises a question as to why are they occupying that role? Um, that that, that it, it becomes more complex than good guy, bad guy, or good gal, bad gal. Because here is this law enforcement person who was there, who actually is, if we're gonna have them, they're the right ones for the bill. They, they, they are there for child development. They are there for safety in a way that's including that, 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 that there's a beautiful notion of safety, but it's still, but they got a gun on their hip. They got all this armor, they got all this stuff. So it's kind of framing the world for us in a certain way. And it makes you wonder, well, why isn't there a different type of counselor to provide that need? But then on the other hand, we got, we got folks who are equally armed and they're not so great with our kids. And they are scary to many of our kids. They're scary to many adults. So all of this is part of the context. It's not, it's, it's just not simple. It's, it's nuanced. Now here, here's where Natasha, like y'all might, might not like this. Given that in central Texas, there are more law enforcement municipalities than I can count. There's federal marshals, there's Texas Rangers, there's sheriffs, there's constables, there's all these different types of police. I want, no hate on, on whoever, whatever, I want as many of them as possible, not on any of my campuses. So what I want then is to know that the only officers on our campuses are the officers we hire and that we train according to our standards. So I will actually say I'd rather have an, uh, uh, an ISD police that I can control than to have APD coming onto campus with absolutely no training whatsoever to deal with, with as I think Andrew said, like routine behaviors. So that's a contrarian position. And this is coming from someone who at the end of the day doesn't like black, uh, doesn't like any of these guns and stuff around any of us. I don't, I'm not, a, I mean, I got a lot of hunters in the family and stuff like this, but I know, and, and the first person that said this was Ted Gordon and it stuck with me for years. Why not guns? Why not bullets? Because black people are magnets for bullets. When the shooting happens, somehow it's us over and over and over again. So if I had a say, we wouldn't have any of it. But we live in Texas where the officers are going to be around. So I'd actually rather have officers that we control. Yeah, this is conversations getting good, you know. So I'm going to throw out... Uh, because, you know, Andrew, you mentioned the word in, in, in your opening around uh, being an abolitionist. And so from an abolitionist perspective, um, talk to me about your sort of views of how we could reimagine safety at school without the presence of, of officers, period. And what, what could that look like? Yeah. So let's go back in history, nearly 250 years in our country's history, over 400 years on this land. 
you cannot divorce the origins of America, really the slaughter of indigenous peoples, the enslavement of black people, the exploitation of these groups of folks from how we are experiencing the world in 2021. Hyper-focus on policing and you get that clearer message that policing in America in the 21st century is a direct descendant of slave patrols, of union busting, of the protection of white people's property. That's what the police are in history. That's what they do. That's what they will do as long as they exist. Now, I understand my privilege in this because I'm a non-parent and I'm an advocate in my ivory tower. And so I want to be very sympathetic to how parents talk about this, right? I understand that you want your children to be safe, that you want them to be secure in their learning environments and to flourish and to thrive, right? And the messaging has been so effective over the past 21 years, let's say post-Columbine, to say that school police officers do it all. Kevin made this point, right? That the messaging is that they are counselors, they are friends, they are mentors, they are buddies. They have expertise in child development. No, police officers are there to enforce those three fundamental origins and to enforce the penal code of the state of Texas, right? So no matter what, no matter how much training is incorporated into these police departments, no matter how much your know, conversation is had around you're trying to be equitable in policing and co-opting language like restorative justice in policing, you cannot divorce it from how it operates, right? So my framework as an abolitionist is to say that we have to recognize the rotten nature of these systems, of American prisons, of American policing, of the surveillance apparatus, right, that is only grown in strength in the 21st century, and say that there is no reforming it, you must abolish it. But in talking about abolition, it's a twofold thing. Yes, these are rotten institutions, but what are we building to ensure that folks do feel safe and secure in their communities and their schools? They would have adequate housing, adequate education, adequate health care, right? They would have access to art, right, to things that are life-sustaining and affirming, right? So we have to be, I think, very intentional about how we navigate this critical space, particularly of the year 2020 to 2021 that we've had, where so many folks have been radicalized by the pandemic, by these ongoing shootings of Black people in community. Brian, I really appreciate you for lifting up Makai. On April 12th in Tennessee, had a 17-year-old Black boy, Anthony Thompson Jr., shot in his school. Dante Wright, a couple of days before Makai. You're, you're not going to separate anti-Blackness from policing ever. It can't be reformed to not be anti-Black. So we have to really engage, and I'm grateful again for this space, to have conversations about how we continually envision public safety outside policing. Because the two, no matter how much the messaging has been pitched to do so, will never be equated with one another. Safety and policing do not equate with one another for Black people.
And I feel like Natasha wants to contribute to this. <laughs> Thank you. I was trying not to take up too much space, but I'm going to take up all the space right yep. now because Dr. Foster, <laughs> I love you and respect you and watch you on the board meetings, but I kind of have to push back on you because is a little bit of slavery okay? Like I'm saying, like you, you're saying like you'd rather have a police force that we train, but when you have districts with the data that we have, these police are being trained by a system that is already uh, like incarcerating us. Like, so I don't, I can't say a little bit is okay. I can't say, let's do it this way. Kind of what, what Andrew said, like when we talk about safety, whose safety are we valuing? Because when my child talks about safety, they are saying no police, I, they scare me, they give me anxiety. Your, your version of safety is causing me harm. So, I can't, I can't say that we should put the needs of white children over the needs of, of anyone else. So I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Well, I'm not saying that. I don't know how, look, I was with you for a minute, Natasha, but then when you jump to, I'm putting the needs of, no, no, no. I'm no, not, no, I don't I'm think not that's saying what that. you're saying. No, no, but, no, that's um, not what I was saying. I was saying for me, that's what, that's what it means like to have police in schools, not from what you were saying. Yeah. Can I, Brian, will I mess it up if I? No, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, so here's what's happened in my life. I'm getting old or whatever. And so all of a sudden I'm in the policy realm in a much different way than I've been in the past. So years ago when I was in DC, my policy work was talking in the ear of somebody and pushing like the most radical, well, not even radical because it was right, right? Like, dude, you need to do this, sir or ma'am, right? But now in a policy seat, I have to look at the terrain of the possible. This is like, I, I'm like, my 20 year old self is calling me a sellout, like right now. And it's reform versus revolution. It's always reform versus revolution. And here we have a, a fundamentally broken system. No, not even broken. That It works for so many people in these specific ways that hurts other folks. So then the it, it becomes a question of the intervention. So like when I say, you, you, you still ain't gonna like this, so, but when I say train our own, do our own, they wouldn't be head to toe in black or blue and, you know, wearing these oppressive militaristic things. They'd be in polo shirts, right? They wouldn't have guns. I want, I want tip of my hand. I'm gonna get in trouble because now people are gonna see me coming because I'm talking too much, but I don't want any guns on campus, period. I don't want officers holding guns. I don't want anyone having guns. And for those who are like, well, it's going to keep us from the one in 10,000 incidents where there's active shooters. Well, then put them on the edge of campus facing that way. But don't bring them onto the campus. I don't want any bullets on campuses. So the other side of accepting the ISD police force would be to really be purposeful about what that force does and how. We also need to understand, so the state of education on this, and, and in most areas, there's just too many laws to keep up for everybody to just keep up with what's going on. But state law in Texas has changed in ways that we need to be taking advantage of. And we need to know that the teachers, in particular biased teachers, but all teachers understand the law and understand that they are basically not to be calling police as go-tos. 
that police should not be involved because you have this situation over here. And they need to know the very narrow set of circumstances where they should ever be messing with calling an officer to handle what's going on in their classroom or even in the hallways. So we could make a, a, re a reform start by having everybody on the same page as to where the law is going, where it's improved. But even that doesn't get us far enough. And this is where the ISDs get to come in and, and set policy even further. And to be my mind should be increasingly restricted in terms of the role of um, the role of the of the officers. So let's bring Fair a little bit into this uh, discussion. You all said something that really resonated with me in that uh, school resource officers seem to have these really kind of multifaceted jobs. So in addition to the core of maintaining the safety on the campus, it seems like they're being asked to be the counselor, they're being asked to be the mediator, they've been asked to be the problem solver. And I wanted to sort of get Farah's insight on um, the expectation that, that we place on law enforcement officers today and um, how does that sort of take away or what does that create in the demands of the job? And then how do you think that that probably could manifest itself in sort of these adverse incidents or, you know, or negative impact on the community, um, looking at how officers have to deal with all the things that they're being asked to do? And is that even fair to them to do that uh, in today's climate? Thanks, Brian. That's a, a great question. Um, I want to start by just saying that to me, the word safety and how it's utilized in our culture is a bit of a farce. Um, because when I think of safety, I do not think of police at all whatsoever. When I think of safety, I kind of think about being around my family. So it bothers me a lot, even in, as a person and as my role in, as the director of Office of Police Oversight, when we equate safety to law enforcement, because that is just not where it's at for me. And I have in my work, I have a serious problem with the fact, and there's a different, there's a pretty stark difference of opinion in, in the Austin Police Department, is that I don't think officers should be the therapist, the coach, the mentor. I just want you to protect and serve me because that is your role. I, I don't, I want their lane to be as narrow as possible. And the result of what's happening that from a societal perspective, because we rely on officers to do pretty much everything from pulling the cat from the tree, from checking fire alarms to, you know, addressing obviously active shooter situations, that that burden is a lot for them emotionally. And the, where it's connected in my work and oversight is that that manifests itself in use of force against people who look like me more times than not. And so I want to narrow the scope of law enforcement. I want to to decrease their lane because they are not equipped with the emotional tools to deal with the stress of the job and the negative implications of it and impact of it adversely affect people of color and more specifically black people. So when, 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 when we talk about police in schools, I'm really in my feelings because it's very uncomfortable for me because I don't want police anywhere near my children. 
or anybody's children because we are not there yet and they are not equipped they're not necessarily equipped to deal with adults. So how are they possibly equipped to deal with children who are evolving and changing and have reactions that may be perceived as aggressive, but not are aggressive, but are treated aggressively, right? And so I, I just, I'm not there yet. And I, I don't know if safety for schools is a place that is the, the, the source of that is law enforcement. To me, safety in schools is not hiring resource officers, it's hiring guidance counselors, it's hiring social workers, it's hiring, because why are they going to the SRO for a mentor? I mean, that's not their job. You know what I'm saying? Why are they doing that? Why are they not investing those that 1.3 million in Ron Rock to you know, more counselors, more teachers that are equipped to dealing with what our kids are dealing with that are different. I'm not trying to age myself, but kids nowadays are dealing with different stuff than I was dealing with. So why aren't we investing in that? And so um, I feel very strongly about not having police or people who look like police or, or quasi police in schools, because I think it's sending a wrong message to our kids. And since we can't have them figured out how to deal with adultification that specifically affects black children, I really don't want them around in schools. And so because the, the, the result of that always disproportionately impacts us, period, right? We have all these researchers on here. Y'all can spot out the data, but we know it impacts us the worst. And so that is where we just really cannot afford that because what was happening is as children are having negative, negative experiences with police and schools, and then we already know based on the data when they become adults, mm -hmm. we already know where that goes. And so I'm not, I'm not really supportive of that at all. Yeah. So, you know, Farrah, you made me think about something that's really important that we need to talk about today. And that is, um, you know, the data. And, you know, I, you know, I think one of the challenges that you have in working in sort of any sort of equity based issues is a lot of people's hesitancy to really step into racial equity and to really uh, name how racism plays out in institutions. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, is this really a, a problem for black students or maybe it's just low income students or we just see, we see this pattern, you know? So I wanted y'all to really speak to why this is such a distinct issue for black students and black parents. And so what is the data sort of telling us as it relates to the outcomes we see for officers being in school. And, and when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, how is it manifested in the data that we see? And let's talk about on the state level, but then I also wanna drill it down locally to see if we have numbers and insight uh, for Central Texas as well. So Andrew, you wanna maybe kind of start us off by uh, just, just talking about what the data tells us. I'd be honored. Before I dive into that, I wanna thank everybody for the contribution so far and Mary's Farah's comments with Kevin's. Kevin, you were describing a counselor earlier or a restorative justice coordinator, someone with a polo without a gun, <laughs> right? Uh, and knowing that safety is not equated with the police, right? So if we invest on that front end, I think that we will see how our schools will transform, right? So let's talk about the data even over the past 70 years, right? Because we understand that Police have been in American schools since the 1950s. 
first appearing, ironically enough, in Flint, Michigan. And how this has been a project of reform since police have been in schools, right? The talking point right now is that we just need more reform. We need more money from the Biden administration to flow to state and local police departments, and we'll reform them and we'll stop all of these police murders of Black people. For 245 years, for 70 years, it has been a project in reform. And what I will tell you about school policing, even now, as we sit with the really extraordinary social movement that rose up out of the summer of 2020 after George Floyd's murder, the longest, biggest sustained social movement in the United States, right? And we have seen scores of school districts either vote to end their contracts with local police departments or disband their internal police department in the case of Oakland, California. There are still tens of thousands of police officers, even in a pandemic, that patrol school campuses across the United States. During the pandemic, they try to justify their continued employment through patrolling meal distribution sites. And I hypothesize monitoring the social media accounts of young people to try to trip them up that way. But whenever you look at any reform that is implemented into school policing or to a policy that strengthens the school to prison pipeline, you might have even a slight time period where the number, the total number of suspensions or expulsions or use of force incidents go down. But I can guarantee you the racial dis disparities and disproportionality will always persist. It will always be black and brown children who are subjected to use of force, who are arrested, who are put out of their classrooms, right? So you know, this is where we are in April of 2021, May of 2021, right? We have reformed it for decades, for centuries. We have spun that wheel. We have thrown all the money at it in really contravention of what folks say they need and in contravention of the social safety net in the United States. And here we are, right? So the data will consistently tell you, even after you implement the reform, the disparities persist, right? Black and brown children are the ones facing this oppression, right? So, so how do we move through this moment accordingly, knowing what we know about it? All right. Any insights into what the data tells us locally uh, for, our, for our local school districts? The darker your skin, the more likely you are to be subject to these interactions that don't turn out well for the student. Uh, we, you know, and, and it's really interesting because we, we think race and, and it is race, but there's also this, this deeper reality that has to do with people's biases. And that's where I think the abolition movement really becomes important because it's, it, it is implicitly an acknowledgement of this intractable, you can't get this bias out of the mix. And so when you have human bias that we just seem to be unable to get out of the mix, then those folks don't need to have guns. Really, really simple. Because the bias we haven't been able to get, and, and to Andrew's point, going, this is with an acknowledgement that these systems were created 
in Austin, where do we have the city council in 1865 talking about the need for a police force? We have them talking about it because of the Juneteenth decree and more black people coming to Austin. So what are we going to do? We need to beef up a police force. So even in Austin, you have like these very early references to policing as something targeting black folk. And then on the East Coast and in the cities, policing targeting working class and poor and these, you know, these underclass ethnic communities. And over, so that's, that's where we start. And so I, I'm not unsympathetic to the notion of if something is built on a bad foundation, how are you ever going to tweak it into something good? But here we are. That's that's the road, you know, we, we've taken. So as we do this reform thing before we break, you know, and if y'all can break the system, I, I am not going I'm not going to stay. I will stand not in the way. But as long as we have it. So here we are. One of the things we begin we need to realize is it goes even deeper than our 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 siloed understanding of these are the white people, these are the this, these are the that. I am lighter and therefore subject to a little less. My brother Chris is lighter than me and subject to less. My brother Hashem is darker than me and subject to more. This is like my life growing up, watching the way things played out. My brother Chris, white, blonde hair, just doing all sorts of mischief, nothing. My brother Hashem, dark skin, late coming home so many times because he was sitting on the curb with his hands behind his back, handcuffed as they checked him out and rechecked him out and this sort of thing, and me somewhere in the middle. So as we talk about it, and and as and the data is showing, it's 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 not race in like this segmented sense. There's literally something about bias and its connection to colorism. And the darker your skin, the, the more dangerous um, it is. Natasha, what do we see for, for Round Rock ISD? Our data is, is extremely disturbing. And I think it's important to mention it here. And I'm so glad you invited me to this space where um, we are really talking about Austin, but are we? Because Austin's Black population is shrinking and where are they going? because they're coming here, our population, our black population is growing um, and Pflugerville. And I think the Round Rock and Pflugerville together, we have some, some really bad data. And uh, in Round Rock, um, black students are four times more likely than white students to, to receive discretionary placement at the DAP. Meaning that's not because they brought a knife, not because they did something that like mandatorily places them there, but, but that means a principal or an administrator or somebody was like, well, you've just had too many referrals, so we're going to send you. Like they decided we're going to send you to the DAP. And it's it's just abysmal. We make up 9% of the district from the data, I believe this was 2017 data, 9% of the district, but 25% of the arrests. Wow. And so, right, like the, and it's it continues that way um, for every single disciplinary section of data and but when you talk about gifted programs when you talk about who's in advanced placement that's not us right so i think we're at a time where round rock like the suburban districts around austin need to come to terms with this data because we're coming 
were not going away. And I think through like advocacy with, with our Round Rock Black parents, like our voice is here. We're not going to be silent about it. We're not going to allow you to choke us out, have it be on the news. And you say the officer did no wrongdoing. Like that's not gonna happen any longer. It's it's not, and it should have it should not have ever happened before. I know um, I when, when um, the footage came out at Cedar Ridge High School of this, he was over six feet tall, heavy set white man, um, SRO body slamming a tiny fourteen year old girl onto the pavement. Um, Y'all know Round Rock by parents, we don't play. We were like, who's, what, huh? So we drove over there and we were like, no, we were talking to students and the students were like, this same SRO has done so much more than what is out. So we, like this data, I feel like is not showing a complete picture because there's so much more that we don't get, we don't see that doesn't get reported. He showed us footage on his phone of um, two students fighting, two black students were fighting and the SRO interrupted the fight by picking one of the students up over his shoulder and body slamming him down to the ground. And the student was still. And I said, what just happened? He was like, he broke his clavicle and they had to come get him. Right. But that was not on anybody's news. That was from us going in and talking to students. So I think when we talk about data, we need to know that these numbers are inflated. Like th there's more to this. Yeah, the, Brian, can the, I just jump in really quick because yeah. her the data that she gave just about Ron Rock mirrors the data that we worked on when we talk about racial profiling in Austin, right? We look at the 8% population, African-American population, but we make up 15% of the stops and 25% of the arrests, right? And so for me, I'm looking at a small school district whose data, as it, it talks about disproportionality of its Black students, mirror what's going on in a city of a million people, like that is extremely problematic. Yeah, I think that that that's to me that's to Andrew's point, right? That that this is a this is a systemic issue, right? Um, we see this pattern play out, whether it's a school district or where whether it's a city. I, I feel like we probably would see it play out nationally with the same sort of racial disparity or that disproportionate use of force uh, against Black people. Um, I'm going to start taking a, a few questions from the, the audience as we move along. But, you know, one of the first questions that we have coming in is, and, and it's on a term that you all used earlier in the discussion. Uh, when we say over-policing, uh, what do we really mean uh, when we say that? And uh, what are some of the, the consequences or outcomes of over-policing in our community and, and of our children? <laughs> I think we can take the word over out. Policing does what it does. It functions as it's supposed to function, right? I want to lift up a point made by Natasha and Farah that the anecdotes, the lived experience, right? I want to lift up the shirt I'm wearing. It's We Came to Learn that was pushed out by the Alliance for Educational Justice, a network of grassroots organizations across the country fighting criminalization, fighting school policing. Folks may recall in 2015, there was an incident in South Carolina where a young black girl, maybe 15, was dragged across her floor in her classroom by the school police officer while she was still in her seat, right? Mm -hmm. And this brutal treatment is the norm, is policing, right? We don't even need to talk about over, right? To think that this young person had their clavicle broken 
after these young people are processing the trauma of this white girl being slammed to the ground. It is nonstop, right? This is just the cycle. And young people in their inherent brilliance and perceptiveness relate the stories of Dante and Anthony and Makai to what they're experiencing in their school. To the point of Natasha and her daughter, maybe her daughter will never have a one-on-one physical interaction with the police officer, but that fear, that paralyzing fear every day when you enter into the classroom, enter into the school building, I might, I might, you know, get brutalized by this. I might get terrorized like this. Speaks to what policing is and the culture of it, right? But before I shut up for now, one thing I do want to talk about as an abolitionist is a critique that I might most often receive, right? Well, Andrew, it just sounds like you're naive about violence and about harm and about the state of the world. Oh, no. I am very aware of how harm and violence operate within the human experience and how we in our human trajectories will both perpetrate and receive harm, right? But as an abolitionist, I want to be very intentional about saying that there is a much different way that we can deal with harm, right? Where we can create systems of accountability, where the harm can be repaired when conflict does occur, and where we can set up these environments where young people feel like they can talk through that strife that they're going through and maybe not perpetrate that harm in the same way again. And kind of consistently build to that world again that young people deserve and that we all do, quite frankly. That's right. The so yeah, I was hung up on over as well because schools are spaces for structured human development. Schools are spaces where you know where you develop these knowledge, skills, etc. Policing is the enforcement of rules. If I'm working with a kindergartner and we're trying to learn how to account for our space and put things away and da 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 da, da. if I say, put that away, and if I'm in rule enforcement oriented and I'm trying to like power through to make a student comply, I am not educating. If I turn it into a game, and I said, what does it look like to do this and then have a student feel a sense of accomplishment or a sense of joy about the cleaner space or, or whatever? That is appropriate child development. So anytime we're talking about being in a school and policing students, you are almost automatically talking about working in a way that is contrary to a holistic, beautiful sense of what it means to provide an education. So. In the context, all policing is over policing. I really like that, that Andrew um, drew that out. So I'm going to take a few more questions from the chat. Andrew got the, the, the Q&A blowing up right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we, we got Let's a see real, if I have a job next week. We got a real good controversial question coming through from the audience, which is, is is that they're, they're asking, um, you know, who's an abolitionist and who isn't on the panel and why or why not as it relates to law enforcement. So 
I kind of feel like I know where y'all stand, but let's talk about that. You know, uh, you know, Dr. Foster, you want to kind of jump in first on no, that one? No, I don't, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am, I am shaken by by the responsibility of my policy role, and and the implications of it, and how I live into how I live with integrity, understanding this, this meta system that I'm in. At the end of the day, I um, have not seen darker folk, underclass folk, darker skinned folk, well served by this system we call policing. And that goes back hundreds of years. So where I fall is I'd rather not have them. Now, from a policy thing, I have to figure out where can what can we get to? And with strong advocacy, we can get further and further. But where can where can I get in fall 2021? Where can I get in fall 2022? Where can I get to, to move um, forward? So I end up being somewhere on the scale. Um, I don't know what, what it frames me as abolition, not abolitionist. My starting point is can we reduce their footprint? Can we not have any guns on campus whatsoever. Can we start and, and can we start from a reframing? By the way, I'm, I'm sorry for taking up so much time, but it, it gets also immensely complicated because we're in the state of Texas. And right now they're talking about permitless carry, which has all sorts of potential loopholes for what happens on our campuses. So if you say election judges, can have guns, which is a voter suppression thing, by the way. But if you say election judges can have guns and then I have an a polling site at my high school, what then? Now I got the guns on the campus. If you say that, oh, you're not supposed to have guns, but if you walk on with the gun, this poor school receptionist in between handing out slips for coming back to class after your dental appointment, she also has to tell someone with an assault rifle, please leave the campus. Do they get paid enough for that? So we have all of these. There's so many devil in the details in this stuff before we even get to the abolition. But the abolition would probably solve 95% of all of our stuff. But right now we got all this stuff in between and before we even get there to deal with. Any other panelists want to weigh in on abolition or not? I can just say that I am here as the representative, as the director of the Office of Police Oversight. And in that role, I am not an abolitionist. Natasha? Um, Dr. Foster, I, I appreciate where you're coming from and what you just said. I, I am an abolitionist. I will say it hands out. I don't believe police have any place in schools. Um, however, like you said, this is the devil that we're given. So how do we deal with it? So. Um, I found some policy through the ACLU that um, I actually met with uh, Farah, when was it? A couple months ago. And she was like, so tell me what happens when an officer comes in and smells marijuana, what's their, what do they do? And I was like, well, we don't have that in our policy. Like it's a lot, it's a lot is left up to police discretion. She was like, no, like it needs to be tight. Mm -hmm. And what she was saying, like really resonated with me, like our policies need to be airtight. So if a student comes in, are you reading their Miranda rights in Spanish? Are you contacting their parent? But you know what I'm saying? Like 
we, I am an abolitionist, but I do believe in what we have right now is what we have. We've, we've got to work with it. And how can we make it as airtight, like you said, reduce that, that footprint until, until we can get them out because they don't belong there. I think it's clear where I stand, but I'm going to lift up a point made by Natasha here, right? That we have inherited the world that we live in, in 2021, right? And I hesitate to call myself an organizer because of my training as a lawyer, but an organizing principle that I've seen implemented in my work is that you meet people where they are, right? And you try to navigate the world as it exists in the time that you take up, right? For our 80 to 100 year lives that will be here on earth, right? And that is so important to think about abolition that way, right? <laughs> Again, I'm an abolitionist, right? I think it's an organizing strategy, but it's a way to constantly vision the world as well. Mm-hmm. We recognize, I, I hear where you're coming from, Kevin, that in Texas alone, right? The Rangers, the sheriffs, Austin Police Department, Round Rock Police Department, ISD police, you know, you can't even move without encountering a police department from block to block. But to think about the world that our children will inherit, right? And this long tradition of the Black radical tradition, right? Of abolitionists in the 19th century fighting slavery, of folks fighting Jim Crow segregation in the 19th and 20th centuries. This is our legacy. This is our inheritance. Will I see a world where police don't exist? Maybe not. But for my niece who was born last year, Maybe, right? And that is, I think, the hope that we have to kind of bring to this work and to this organizing and to these conversations, right? That maybe we don't benefit for, from it in our individual lives, but 100 years down the road, there will be a better world. You know, I, I think um, one of the hardest things to do uh, in this type of work, when we are addressing issues like this in our community, is to even sort of dream or visualize um, how do we know when we get it right? You know, what what does it, <clears throat> what would it feel like? And um, this was probably a little bit out there for y'all. And I know that, that I didn't ask you all to prepare for it. But if you if you had to close your eyes and you had to imagine what a safe campus would be for our students and our faculty and our administrators, what would it feel like? What would it look like? Uh, what would we be able to see? And I always think that that's important for these conversations because sometimes we get so caught up on trying to work with what's wrong, we never really dream about uh, what it would actually look like when it's right. And so I just wanted to throw out to you all, um, help us visualize what it would look like to you when we, when we get it right. There is an organization in New Orleans that I greatly admire called the Rethinkers, and they fight the school to prison pipeline, but also school privatization, especially in this post-Katrina world of the past 16 years. But they had a young person they organized with who died when he was 15, George Carter. And he was a member of the Alliance for Educational Justice through this network. And he spoke in his young, short life of not wanting metal detectors in his school, but mood detectors. To walk into school and feel like he could talk to the adults who are charged with his care, 
talk to his peers about what's going on. Oh, my uncle died from COVID-19. I have to work to support my family. You know, I'm trying to care for my younger sibling as this tragedy is going on around us, right? You didn't think even of the pandemic, right? So I think that's one thing. And I think of just the space to explore, right? To think of what an education should impart empathy and critical thinking skills in young folks, right? That could be through a garden that is maintained by the school community and that young people are able to interact with. It could be just with that space where young people could create art during even a period in the afternoon as they're wrapping up their day or after school if they have the time for it, right? But a school that is governed by that idea that this will be a, a mood detection space and that you have all of that authority to explore the complex human emotions that you will have to navigate through your life. And we will be here to support you through the good and the bad of it all. I love that. Mood detectors over metal detectors. Any other dreams or visions? Yeah, and 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 George Carter, that was that was brilliant. Uh, the, it's it's such a brilliant sentiment. And and my three things are are that one, students' needs are known and their needs are met. If we had a beautiful world, all students would come in perfectly equipped and ready to, to move forward. But the reality is kids come hungry. Kids come having experienced a death in the neighborhood or a death close to them or any number of, of traumas or, or insufficiencies like being hungry or whatever. So given that, the school, and it's like more than we are, if we are going to be effective, we, the school has to be like a superheroic organization because the society doesn't ensure that kids are going to come not hungry. So we got to figure out how to get them fed because that's a precursor to effective learning. We have to have kids resettled and feeling safe when the world outside has not been safe. So given that need, know those needs, and, and meet those needs. When a child experiences, not even just in their household, but in the community, a death through violence that lives with them when they come to school. So now, and this is where the policing is a, is, is, is a mismatch. So now a child is irritable, a child is stressed, a child is more anxious. And that ends up being manifest in a way that is actually appropriate to the emotional stuff that they're going through, but ends up being read in a way that we have a punitive response to. So we don't know their needs enough and then we don't meet them. So needs known, needs met. The second is simply an asset-based approach to dealing with kids. That when a kid comes into the building, whatever their abilities, whatever their background, wherever they are, that we find the things to build upon. And in a diverse community, you, you take from all of the things that all the kids bring into the building and you use that, you harness that to facilitate their learning. And that all of it lends itself to the idea of all students living into possibility. 
So whatever it is that they are dreaming of being possible or welcomed into possibility of being an artist or being a lawyer, being a, you know, a, a whatever. So I, I can see a beautiful school all, all the time. And the most frustrating thing to me is that in our systems, our structures get in the way of the beauty as much as our structures create the possibility for beauty. And policing, unfortunately, is one of those examples. Um, I think kind of along the lines of what you said, Dr. Foster, schools are a symptom of our society. So when I think about like freedom dreaming and I'm really like looking at what what things should be, I've got to rethink capitalism and and our ingrained culture of anti-blackness and white supremacy. I can't just stop at a school. If I'm a truly freedom dream, I need to dream big. And um, when I do think of of that being dismantled and us living in a space where we can send our kids to school and feel safe about it and know they're going to, to come whole and leave whole, I think about conversations that I've had with our ancestors and they talk about segregation which with such uh, beauty. Yes, segregation was bad, but they talk about their teacher was their next door neighbor. They gave him a ride home. They took him to the grocery store. Like that's when I envision a school where a whole child is coming and showing up, we have that type of feeling of what was when, when we had segregated schools. I want that feeling for us all. All right, so I'm gonna take a few more questions from, uh, from the chat. We, we're getting a lot of questions uh, that really are coming in around accountability. And I want um, you all to respond to accountability from two perspectives. One, uh, as school administrators, what can you do to really address this issue in your school and, and, and as a district? And then the second perspective is that uh, as parents, you know, how do you sort of advocate and organize to ensure that your school administrator is adjusting, is, is addressing this issue uh, with, within the district? So let's talk from the school administration standpoint first. What are some, some ideas or recommendations that school districts should be doing right now? Well, let me start with that because when I had my meeting with Natasha, I was like, um, there is no way on the planet that if you have officers on your force, that there isn't a significant policy manual that dictates how they're supposed to be interacting with students. And the fact that there isn't one gives too much leeway to those officers and has zero accountability because the accountability has to be formally documented and adopted as part of the culture of having that police force. So at a bare minimum for school administrators that have law enforcement on their campuses and schools, before they create one, they need to ensure that there are policies in place that clearly and definitively dictate how they interact with children, period. And without that, you give too much leeway with to officers with absolutely no accountability and no opportunity to address poor behavior. And to extend on that, everybody needs to know the rules so that teachers aren't calling when they shouldn't be. 
and parent, like everybody needs to be on the same page as to what, um, what these rules are. I'm going to deviate just slightly here and it kind of goes back to the introductory remarks from Brian, right? So I think within policing, accountability is a nebulous concept at best, right? Probably doesn't quite apply because it's such a punitive, unrelenting system. But what I will talk about is accountability between students and between administrators, teachers, and students, right? It fundamentally begins with an acknowledgement of harm, right? This is why I'm reluctant about even calling Derek Chauvin's trial accountability, because our legal system is structured to avoid it, to say, no, I didn't do that. Although the world witnessed me be on this man's neck for nine minutes. Right. And so you can just imagine, let's take it back to that clavicle breaking incident that we discussed or the black girl being slammed on the ground. Right. That's I'm reluctant still about accountability within policing. But as we're building this abolitionist future, if you're drawn to it, right, that has to be a fundamental building block of it to say that, look, you know, I strive to be a good person. I fell short when I harmed you in some way. Let me acknowledge that and then try to build from that, right? And, and let the healing and repair of harm flow from it. If you don't want, if you're a parent and you don't want an SRO on your campus or you don't want officers on your campus, say so and lift that up and, and, and have it be heard. Um, and that's easy to say, by the way, but I think it's important. So like for me as a trustee, Every new person that says my kid goes to this school and there are no SROs and it was awesome. And by the way, in our school district, we have that. And somebody else says, but then when my kid went to this school, we had SROs and it didn't work out. And we we have that as well. Those should be lifted up. I will say. Unfortunately, that there is risk and, and it's not nice that there's risk. The only time cops showed up at my door to serve an arrest warrant was after, immediately after advocacy to a school district to say, what happened with this child? Can you please look at the, uh, uh, the, 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 the campus surveys to see what was going on? Because it feels like there might be more going on. Just advocating on that level formally got me an arrest warrant the next morning for failure to pay a fine for failure to pay uh, wear a seatbelt three years earlier. So even advocacy comes with risk. Uh, so I don't want to make light of that. On the other hand, I'll put my number in the chat and, and, um, and I would say lift up your objection so that we have it known and there's more opportunity for to keep pushing and pushing and pushing this conversation. I just want to speak to that um, that point about speaking up because yes, there is risk. Um, there's risk as a as a parent. A lot of parents thank you. They're like, I don't want to. I don't want to say anything because the principal is going to retaliate against my kid. My kid is about to get out of school. We're just trying to make it to graduation. Like I hear that so much. But my my amazing friend Tiffany Harrison always says like, there's power in the collective, and finding your people. 
like, I feel like here when we talk about accountability, we need to talk about how powerful our voices are together. And when we go and, and hold people accountable and show up at board meetings, because we belong at board meetings. If you don't know when your board meeting is, you need to, you need to look it up, get on Zoom. You need to contact me. We'll, I'll figure it out for you. You yes. let me know because I feel like you have got to be an advocate for your kid because no one else in this system is looking out for you. They are looking out for themselves. And um, also I wanted to kind of speak to something that, that we've done as Round Rock Black Parents is that we've partnered with Savior Six, which is an organization in um, the Bay Area in California. And basically they, they trained our black student unions on how to recognize Title VI violations and how to file a report because our district doesn't even have any information on their website about Title VI, which is a violation of Title VI. So, I mean, we, we really have to be aware. And if you're not aware as a, as a black parent, brown parent, whoever you are, you can reach out to these community organizations. You can reach out to us and we will steer you in the, in the right direction. I also wanted to briefly speak on uh, House Bill 3485, which is the measure bill, which Mimi Stiles um, co-authored. And uh, I don't know where it is right now. I know it was voted on favorably, so I'm assuming it's going to pass in the next two weeks. But um, it basically requires districts to report all of their um, discipline data, like all of it from like how many times a teacher removed a kid from a classroom, how many people are going to detention at like all of the data. So um, I just think we, we really need to be aware of what's happening, show up in your spaces and also not just showing up, but taking those seats because as a black parent, you're, you're begging your oppressor to see your humanity. And when you show up, like Dr. Foster is now a board member. He ain't having to beg anybody to see his humanity because he's right there in the seat. Like we need to support each other in running for these seats, getting on these councils, like the Student Health Advisory Committee. Like we have to take up that space in order to change the system. So, you know, Natasha, you made me think about something that I wanted to, to touch on uh, real quick before we, we open it up to questions from the audience. Um, one of the, the, the things that we tried to do today was to have a student actually be on this panel to really speak from the student perspective, but the, that student um, wasn't available. But talk to me a little bit about um, how students can actually organize and get involved in this effort, because, you know, you talked about um, stories of their experience. I think the qualitative sort of data to go along with the numbers that we have, but it's the students that are living it. But, but talk to me about some of the initiatives you all may have had to actually help students organize and get involved in really addressing this issue on, on the campuses. Um, I have to give big ups to our Black Student Unions um, at Early College High School, Round Rock High School. Like they're, they started at Round Rock High School. Um, Tiffany Harrison started it with Michael Moore, who was a phenomenal student who is now at Prairie View A&M. And the students, they drive their own advocacy. Like we started these organizations and they just trickled in and like, you know what? I have a problem with this. I have a problem with the N-word being said on the ca campus. We're gonna fix it. Like the students, they, they have such a beautiful voice and putting them in a collective, similar to how we put our parents in a collective, they, they come up with these, with these amazing strategies 
to, to basically fight the system that's oppressing them. And I mean, we do the MLK March, we do, um, I mean, like I said, we, the early college BSU organized, um, organized around um, reducing or getting the, getting rid of the N word on campus because they were being called that often. Um, my, my caution though, is like when we talk about policing and students, I think their voice is critical. Like we have to have that there. But I also know that putting them in spaces with adults can be traumatic. So I feel like there's a fine line of navigation there that we have to say like, yes, students, this is your voice. This is your advocacy. But also I, as an, a grown up, am going to, to shield you from, from these adults over here that are going to ask you questions that it's like more trauma on top of the trauma you're trying to share and like sit and change. Natasha is preaching. So it is possible to create the spaces, facilitate the possibility for students to have advocacy and their learning and education completely intertwined. So creating the space, having the quality and competence of teachers able to go in and, and not be the authority figure that's going to spew facts, but rather be the facilitator that's going to help students find voice and help that congeal into something that can be delivered forward. So students simultaneously learn and develop as critical thinkers as we're hearing them and partnering with them to make things better. But the students absolutely have insights that we don't have. We had them however many years ago when we were where they are, but the further we got away from it, it doesn't, you can love them all you want. You're not in the student's seat, feeling what they're feeling, feeling the fear of all these adults or feeling the anxiety you know, et cetera, et cetera. So student advocacy should be part of our education system. Students finding voice should just be part of the way it's done. And it is more important, the more marginalized and ostracized and pushed to the side the students are because they need to be invited to possibility in the ways that our more privileged students they just they just live it. They live the privilege and, and, and nothing wrong with, you know, they're, they're just doing their thing. It's not their fault, but they're just doing their thing. So nobody has to tell them, exercise your voice. You have a right. You have a da, 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 da. Some of our kids are so beaten up by the circumstances that we have to facilitate their creation and living into something different. Yeah, I always say there's nothing wrong with privileges that we all want it. We all want access to that, right? If we all have it, we, you know, it's not even an issue, right? Um, so I'm gonna get in trouble because y'all, this is such a good conversation. You know, um, I'm supposed to be taking questions from the audience, so I'm gonna start popcorning in some audience questions. Um, but one of the questions that we have coming through was in response to our conversation earlier. And it says, uh, if school districts are responsible for their own police force, how do you still mitigate uh, the bias uh, between districts? It seems like there still would be a lot of room for corruption 
uh, on regional culture, considering school boards are elected positions. So how do you really kind of get into this and, and root this out? And, and I'll kind of sort of take it a step further to say um, that is it bias or, or, or can we be more intentional to say is it racism? Uh, is what we're really dealing with as it relates to this issue. But what are y'all thoughts on that? I think that's right. And I'm going to marry my response with another question I saw in the Q&A about SB 534 and HB 1788 moving through the pipeline, which would create more immunity for school districts based on the conduct of school police officers or retired volunteers with guns. So, yeah, absolutely. It, it leads to <laughs> racism and bias playing out in very unique ways, depending on the school district. I think an argument that is often pitched concerning internal school police departments is that, well, there's a clear line of accountability. We can say that, well, if the police officer hurts the young person, then the independent school district is therefore responsible, maybe kind of that chain of custody for a lawsuit, right? But if we think about the litigation offers or opportunities that are available to parents and young people, you think about immunity as it exists, right? Qualified immunity has been a big discussion in the national lexicon over the past year, right? It's very costly. It's very time consuming. It's exhausting to bring a lawsuit, right? Uh, the district will likely try to settle without reprimanding that police officer in any meaningful way, right? And so we have to kind of think about this as the argument is pitched for internal school police departments to be that response to the hundreds or even thousands of police departments that exist even across the state of Texas, right? And kind of think that no matter what, back to my introductory remarks, the fundamental purpose of policing will play out and will be enforced if there is a police department at all. Okay, the next question that I'm gonna queue up is, um, and, and I'm not too knowledgeable but, but about uh, this House bill and Senate bill, but the question is, uh, what are your thoughts about legislation that gives qualified immunity for school-based police officers? people <laughs> yeah yeah it's, no it's deeply concerning yeah i mean this child got his clavicle broken yeah yeah so i'm gonna just stop there come on come on no no look when you put when you allow people to carry deadly weapons and when you license people to kill other people the like to go to to basically everybody else on the panel's point that shouldn't even be but given that it is the accountability around that needs to be sky high if you have the right to infringe upon me by brandishing weapons in my face and intimidating me and doing all that other stuff at the very least can i have some accountability so qualified immunity come on no no all right, I mean, unless I'm understanding, misunderstanding what qualified immunity means here. I think you're on the right track with, with that one. Um, okay, so next question. This comes from Ailey ISD. 
Uh, I'm a school board trustee in A-LEAF ISD, and our data is showing that even though Black students make up 25% of the population, uh, compared to 55% of the Hispanic population, they make up four times the amount of Hispanic in, I think it's, it's juvenile justice, JJAEP and DAEP programs. I don't know what those mean, but y'all probably do. Um, what can I do as a school board trustee, as a lone wolf who wants to talk about the real data? So, oh man, I'm, I'm gonna pretend I didn't hear any name of any IISD to like protect the guilty or the innocent. But at some point, there are times when we are dealing with deeply held, uh, unintractable beliefs that people have. And so sometimes you are just straight up dealing with folks that believe that, well, these numbers just reflect the reality that this population is more violent. So it, it's, 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 it gets really, really tough to, um, to come at it when, when, when you're in that kind of lone wolf um, position. I don't know, Andrew, Natasha, Farrah, what do y'all say? I, 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 we have that same situation going on right now in Round Rock. It's it's very disturbing. Um, we had during during one of the um, it was a meeting on uh, goal setting meeting, and uh, one of the trustees I don't remember which one it was said, "Well, black students only make up nine percent of the district. Why are we focusing so much time on them?" We have for the first time I think we've had. Um, maybe, I don't know, it, we've, we've been in existence for like 108 years. This is the second black female trustee we've had or however long Brown Rock has been in existence. Like there is a system here that's set up for us to not talk about the data. So um, even, I don't know, I, I feel like that's a very hard place to navigate. And I think you should reach out. Uh, her name is Tiffany Harrison. She is, I think you should reach out to her because she is able to navigate spaces like you wouldn't believe and she, in that same goal setting meeting, she stood her ground and was like, no, we are not going to push this to the side. We are going to talk about this data. We are going to talk about black students because for a hundred and however many years we haven't. And I think you could get some really valuable information from her on how to navigate that space. You know, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking about that board meeting. I watched it and I want I will, as you were as you started talking, I said, I want to shout out Tiffany Harrison uh, and her board work just north of Austin because she was exactly hit several times in one meeting with clear indicators of folks deeply held biases. And they weren't trying to be bad people or whatever, blah, 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 whatever. But the things they were saying were just like not good. What she did was say, what just happened was not good. And here's where we need to go. And it was beautiful. She said, we need to stop all conversation and have some equity training like right now. Like we need to all back up and get on the same page so that people can see even what they're doing. Um, I, 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 I sent her so many texts and notes of praise and thank you for teaching me. <laughs> that, that was really impressive. But it goes to that kind of lone wolf thing and we have to watch to see how it turns out. But what Tiffany does is she's data backed. She is very, she's collegial and just 
the, the, the damper tent, like she doesn't let it get to it. Like I boil over, my head's going to explode. She kept her calm. I don't know how you do that. You, she kept her calm. She was collegial and she insisted on that board developing the practices and that will help train them up to see the data so that then they can make good decisions about the data. But we have to decide, you know, we have to see how it all plays out. You know, my one point of privilege as a moderator today, because I've been really trying to moderate, but I want to be a panelist too, um, is to say for the lone wolf, it's never going to work if you're a lone wolf. And that's the importance and the need to really organize and have others around you because it is the collective shift in power that really needs to happen to create the movement. So if you are a lone wolf now, then start meeting with parents, start talking to students, start building coalitions, start connecting to other organizations in your community that are aligned with your values and, and, and your interests. And you got to build some collective power to really be able to try to move the system because as a lone wolf, it's never going to happen. Uh, if you're out there on your own, you know, we, we say systems are designed to put you in check real quick. If you're a lone, lone wolf, you probably won't be a trustee very long if you're a lone, a lone wolf, right? So that's the part around organizing. I think it's so important to address these issues. So next question up. Um, is there any movement around restorative justice implementation in schools, um, either in Austin or Round Rock or other areas that you all have seen around the state? And if so, um, what organizations or entities have you seen sort of be actively involved uh, with restorative justice work? Yeah, so as a part of this conversation with the social movement that's still ongoing from the summer of 2020 and the Austin City Council's action around it, which, you know, I think has been more forward thinking than a lot of other places around the country. I think they're continually thinking about how they are reimagining those funds from the APD budget and how they'll reallocate them to really serve public safety, as we've been discussing. So apparently last week they agreed, the Austin City Council, I believe the organization might be Life Anew, uh, to dedicate a million dollars or so to a contract to implement restorative justice in AISD. And I'm all behind restorative justice and the philosophy of it and as really an alternate way of thinking of how to handle behavior in schools of young people. But I caution folks to really think about restorative justice and its implementation as a proposed panacea for, again, 245 years of history, right? So if you think that even a million-dollar grant is going to address centuries of harm, probably not going to happen, right? And, you know, this is something maybe more for principals and high-level school administrators to say, well, we implement this restorative justice program, and we're not seeing the results. We're still having to suspend kids. Our kids are still getting arrested, right? You have to stick with it for it to fully be able to play out in the way that it must, right? 
and to say that, you know, not only will it be this one-time million-dollar grant, but let's think about another $5 million down the road. Let's think about this constant transformation of our school and its culture and its philosophy and how it really serves young people. I also wanted to throw in something about um, about restorative justice. And yes, it, it is very much needed, but I think about how we have really ingrained our schools in these SEL programs. And um, Dina Simmons, uh, she said, is it SEL or white supremacy with a hug? Because I think you can't, like we're talking about SEL, but really we need to be talking about race before we can talk about SEL because all those things that are gonna come up like they, they, they have um, racial, like our white supremacy culture embedded in them. So I think when we talk about restorative, just, uh, restorative practices, we also need to talk about our implementation of SEL. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have another question that's that's coming in uh, to response of the the, the Measure Act. Uh, so uh, Representative Goodwin's bill, the Measure Act, reported out to. Uh, uh, of committee, uh, it mandates the TEA to provide disciplinary data easily available to the public uh, by race, by gender, by state, region, ISD, and campus. And the question is, is that if such data is available, um, can we still really depend on school administrators um, to be held accountable or basically uh, do something with the data that you see? I, I think like as an administrator, um that data being made public that's that's for the public to say administrator do this you see this data like what is your excuse for not doing this that is for school district why are you not addressing this like so i think that accountability push needs to come from from the public to create to readjust these policies that will hold administrators accountable and I think also within that, you need to talk about how you're reporting the data, because I know at, at one time, one school in our district was touting like, oh, we had no cases of ISS because we did away with it. But that's because you're not reporting it. Like you just took the room away and like shifted it somewhere else over here. Like we need to make sure that we are accurately reporting this data so that we can keep track of it and our policies need to need to be set in place to ensure that. The, um, the Department of Education, and there's actually um, some of the folks from IUPRA that I get to work with um, who kind of first put me onto this, but the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education does a really good job of collecting data and just through a simple search of like school name or school district, you can pull up really good data really quickly. And it's in it, and it's delivered in a very um, digestible format. Because a lot of times, you know, when people are trying to like not pay attention to making data available, they'll say here and they give you this file and it's huge and you can't sort through it. So the Department of Ed has, has good um, data as as what well, I'm sorry I'm going back to maybe I'm going back to a question I've been trying to like multitask look at these questions and there's so much good stuff going on um but the data is out there so getting the data into the public's hands and then as as was said the public then coming back and making the demand and putting it in our faces so that we it's like shame the devil so if you put it in my face I have to say I'm okay with it 
or you will lie, or I'm not okay with it. And most people want to be the good person. Nobody's like waking up saying, well, I want to be seen as the devil today. They want to be good. So you put it in their hands, you put it in our hands and tell us, okay, here it is. What are you going to do? And make it public, make it plain. Yeah, the dad, the dad is a, it's a receipt. So now we've gone on record, right? And now that you know we've officially been able to see and determine what's happening, right? And so, yeah, I feel like this that is that first step in trying to get to accountability. And this kind of ties into uh, another question that's that's sort of come through. Um, is anyone uh, knowledgeable or can talk to a school district? Uh, that has been successful uh, in removing police uh, from the district and the campuses. So has anybody, have you all seen anybody go in that direction of, of removing officers from their schools? I've seen it. I've absolutely seen it. And I won't name the schools because I don't want targets on them. But there are specific schools serving um, populations where the kids have been through more and are more likely to evidence the behaviors that have them be targeted. And they're also kids more likely to not be feeling like that authority coming at them. And so on this campus, and there's a couple of very specific schools I know of, the philosophy of the school around every teacher knowing about their kids and knowing their circumstances and being the be, them being the mental health first responders and them knowing who to call quickly when needed and building the skills of the teachers and then building the, the, the pathways to who you call next, who you call next and having that their ecosystem be a loving ecosystem where the kids are taken care of and it saves lives. I mean, it literally creates a circumstance where a kid prone to self-harm, a kid prone to depression, a kid who has had traumatic instances feels the safety that has them open up and move forward in their education, but also in case after case after case, it is the diversion away from our default school to prison. They, they've totally disrupted it. They don't have police on campus. And the demographics of the student body say in some people's minds, oh, no, this is where you need the cops. And they don't have any. And their results are extraordinary. It's very possible to build these systems up. So the so future next, is, oh, go ahead, Andrew. Uh, pardon. The future is here, y'all. Right. I may have spoken about this an hour ago, but after George Floyd's murder, we saw scores of school districts across the country, from Minneapolis itself starting to Oakland in June, ending those contracts between the school districts and the police departments in their communities, or disbanding, disbanding their internal school police departments, right? And one thing that I'll say is that Texas Appleseed supports the national campaign for police-free schools. And right before the pandemic in December of 2019, we gathered and kind of thought about what the 2020s would look like for our work, right? Recognizing that it was probably going to be a long way off to achieve what Oakland did six months later from that point, right? So, you know, we are in this moment of sustained advocacy around this, right? 
I certainly lift up individual campuses, which Dr. Foster spoke about, but entire school districts at this point. In February, Los Angeles Unified School District voted to divert millions of dollars from the Los Angeles Unified School District Police Department to resources for Black children, right? And if I'm understanding it correctly, specifically named Black children as the recipients and beneficiaries of these new programs and spending allocations. So this is it, right? Uh, to that question from Alif earlier, I would say blast that data out on social media. That has proven to be a really effective organizing tool in the 21st century, right? Like this is the moment to keep the pressure up, right? And really, you know, continue to see these wins materialize. So one question that's coming in uh, says, what initiatives are there around educating students on what their rights are, how we can help empower them to interact with police in an informed way that can keep police from abusing their position? <laughs> I, I feel like I'm talking to you. I know, I know. And of course, it's the two men, right, who are talking. <laughs> I mean, this has always been a challenge for us because our purview is specifically APD. And there is a difference between the role of officers on their campus as opposed to officers that they encounter outside of school. And I think it really depends on the age group that you are talking to because it gets confusing. Um, and also, how you go about doing it because you don't, I think particularly for black students and students of color, there's probably an innate fear, right? And so I think, um, and that's what our challenge is, is because, you know, essentially what we do in our community engagement is helping inform the community about what their rights are and how to interact with law enforcement. And I, I just feel kind of uneasy with having that with like elementary school students because I just feel like that is an opportunity or a place for them to just be exposed to different things, not kind of how to the talk, right? And what your legal rights are. And so I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but I just kind of feel like it is a delicate balance. And what I've been spending a lot of time in this conversation thinking about, I mean, the conversation has been great, but what has literally set on my heart is Natasha talking about her daughter feeling anxiety with the SRO being here? And I'm just kind of like, how is she, that's directly going to impact how she learns and obtains information and her comfort level in a school community where she should feel safe in all forms, right? And so for me, I, I struggle with that because I'm like, it makes me ask myself, if I go into school and talk about, you know, how what your rights are and how to interact with police, does that potentially exacerbate the anxiety that we know that black students feel with not only the officers that are right outside their classroom doors, but that they will see, you know, when they're out with their parents. So I don't have any answers for that one. This is a tough question for me um, because I recognize the need for, for our students to be well-informed, but I also feel that it's more important to me that they be in an environment where they can thrive. Uh, stress. Um, is the sort of unaccounted for variable in so much, right? So when kids are taking standardized tests, we don't have a standard that says you will know how to handle stress, 
or you will know what we say, do you know this fact? When we fail to realize that we're not just measuring whether you know the fact, we're measuring whether you know the fact and can handle a certain type of stress. Stress is around us to, to a much greater extent than we acknowledge, and it exists for our children as well. So I struggle with it as well because every time, I mean, exactly what Ferris saying, every time you introduce this, you are introducing kids to one of life's stressors. And the question is, how long can we allow kids to grow without those weighted burdens? And at what point do you have to go and say, look, if you want to stay safe in these ways, you have that talk. As soon as you have those talks, you're, you're taking a little bit of innocence away. And other kids don't have to have that innocence taken away. So it, it's, it, it's incredibly dicey. It gets dicey as well because the competence of the teacher delivering instruction around this is critical because not everybody faces the same consequences but when you come at a, a, an officer or when an officer approaches you, it's not the same for everybody. This is one of the hardest lessons, I think, for many people to learn. But I also think many white people like get it. I was just thinking about this the other day when I read through comments, how many white folk really, really get it and are pained by what's going on and trying to work through their sense of how to do it. But also millions of others who, who who, who don't get it at all. And so they're going to say, oh, just be colorblind and just, and, and it's like going to be bad instruction for, for our kids. I was cringing a little bit when the question was raised about how do you teach? Because what I teach, quite frankly, is avoidance. And then I teach uh, a, a, a performance of respect that can look like a kind of old school shucking and jiving that we don't want to play into. But when I'm running my student programs that I used to run, we would say we survive. We value ourselves so highly that our first priority is survival. So we're going to play this game. Even sometimes we're being disrespected in certain ways because the first thing we have to do is survive. So sometimes you, yes, sir, people who haven't merited a sir, right? And so, but when I'm teaching these, it's always with a little bit of uck in my heart because I'm teaching folks how to live in a world that is too often hostile to them. And as soon as you acknowledge that, you're stealing innocence or for others, you're, they already knew. A lot of kids already knew. And so you're giving them valuable tools, but it's a dicey conversation about how to work with kids around the notion of uh, of policing and unless and anyone trip or, or be confused, we're not talking about pie in the sky. We're talking about personal circumstances where no amount of this protected me or I felt like my life was literally saved by buying enough time through my deference and whatever for a white person to show up. And the deference was immediately shown to the white person. And I feel like I, I, I got saved from a beatdown. So like the, it's, I don't know, I'm sorry, I'm going off a little bit, but it's, it's, it's the diciest question, diciest. It really is. You know, this question made me feel some type of way too. And it actually made me connect to, you know, there was a, there was a tweet earlier this week from, from our Austin Police Association. And um, I'm going to read the tweet to you because, you know, when I read this question, it made me think about the same. But it said, 
Can you imagine the reduction in officer-involved shootings if people would just comply and complain later? And so, so I, I, I suppose there's a sentiment out there that, that, that it's the people that have to sort of change or it's the students that, uh, that have to change what they're doing. And so it's just the accountability uh, on the students as opposed to the accountability being on the institution. And, and so that, that really disturbs me uh, with those types of sentiments. Yeah. I just think you can't reform that, right? Farrah's point is so well taken. I have not stopped thinking about Natasha reflecting on her daughter's experience since she spoke the words, right? There is the physical harm of policing to our young people, to the babies in our lives, to the children in our lives. But is that lasting mental impact that we can consider. This child who's 11 years old, who will one day be 35 years old, who will one day be 70 years old, thinking about when I was in school, these sentinels were there, just even the fear that they would pull a gun on me and shoot me, right? I, I wanna offer one other thing that was lifted up earlier that, you know, I'll age myself, so I'll be 30 in July, which, you know, is great. It, you know, I'm, I'm happy to celebrate my 30th birthday. Uh, but one thing that has guided me on my path for social justice for these 30 years is the idea that the folks closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And this has been a sentiment that's been reflected today, that young people, when we're talking about dismantling the school prison pipeline, ending exclusionary discipline and ending school policing, right? Young people will lead us on that front. And if we are able to invest and fully support they're organizing as youth workers, right, as adults who are just drawn to support young people in their organizing efforts. Then I think that is, again, how we build that new world. And we will really follow their lead as they guide us on where we have to go, where we must go. So I know that we are almost at time today. And um, man, the time has just flown by. I was a little worried. I was like, oh, a two hour discussion. You know, that's like a, you know, but y'all have just made this go by so quickly. And uh, I want to get to sort of closing thoughts and call to action. And so uh, if there's parting words uh, for all of our uh, listeners and followers today, um, how can they get involved? Um, what do you sort of see them being able to do to really address this issue uh, of uh, law enforcement in our schools and the disproportionate uh, negative impact that it's having on Black students. So I can start and say, you know, I'm from Chicago, and so my transition to Austin has been quite interesting. And one of the interesting things about it is it was really for a very, very long time, the first time that I encountered um, white people who just really had zero interaction with people of color and, um, you know, particularly Black people. That was just not my experience in Chicago. And I say that because the bubble is real, is really real in Austin. And you can really just be oblivious or immune from what is going on for people of color in Austin in a way that I have just never experienced. Um, and, um, and I'm bringing that up because I think that it, it bothers me 
very much so that when we talk about disproportionate impact, when we talk about systemic racism, when we talk about oppression, it's always put on the shoulders of black people and people of color to solve. And in my mind, when are white people gonna speak up and join the movement to really change institutions that your ancestors built to keep us down. And so it's like, it, it just seems counterintuitive to me that we are negatively impacted by these the systemic oppression, but yet we have to solve it and figure out and change the system that was built to hold us down. Like that makes no sense to me. And so I say that lovingly, and I say that in a way that you know, it's, it is time to get uncomfortable. It's time to get comfortable with having these conversations. I mean, we're obviously in your communities, we're in your schools, we're in your government. Black people aren't going anywhere, brown people aren't going anywhere. And so at what point are, are, are those that have the power perceived and actual going to really take a position that human decency is a priority in our culture. Fairness and equity is a priority of our culture. And so that's what I leave you with to mull over and to think about. And, um, and it's not time for white fragility, it's time for white action. And so please take that with love and courtesy and faith that you will have an awakening that joins us so that we truly all can be treated equally and fairly. All right, you trying not to get invited back to another farm, Sarah Musket. Others closing thoughts from the panelists. So, um, not nothing profound. I just want to, uh, I guess, celebrate the resilience and the, the just still being here of all the folks who have to suffer through the systematic, easily identifiable problems with our systems. Like I debate the, you know, the, the, the comment that comes back if I say, well, I teach kids this. And then the excellent point that comes back is like, why have the kids gotta be? And literally the words out of my mouth when I work with some of my kids is, that's right. I'm expecting more of you than of the adults. I, I, you need to be heroic. It's, it's not even fair to ask so much of kids, but at the same time, we're black and that's what it means. The, the reason why black people are still here is because of our capacity to be better than when everybody has all these horrible things and misrepresentations as to who we are, this capacity to keep pushing through and actually be heroic in ways that other people are just living their lives. So it, it sounds like a weird thing to do, but I want to just celebrate Black people. I just want to celebrate Black people for like this debate. There was a really nice comment to say, okay, y'all a bunch of Black folk and you don't seem to agree. How are we ever going to like keep forward? But, but what, and it, it was a very nicely, you know, kind of worded comment. But the thing is, I see Farah, I see Natasha, I see Andrew, I see Brian, and I see, by the way, people of different colors and backgrounds in IUPRA that are putting this together. And I see folks who might not agree on every point, but we all know where our hearts are. We all know where we're trying to get to. And we all have insights that, that can articulate one with another to come forth with solution. But what we're doing is we're having the conversations. And we see our humanity first, 
before we see our points of agreement or disagreement, right? So we see that. So that's the spirit we need to keep pushing with so that we can get to the point where the human, where our solutions, which are good solutions, and the humanity of those solutions keeps pushing forward. Because it's, it's, it ain't the people on the crazy side over here. I mean, they're, they're the crazies are the crazies, but it's the people who are just trying to figure it out. They've never, like to Ferris point, they've never had to deal with this stuff before. And they're like, what? Those are the folks that they need to see our humanity. And it's, it sucks to have to like turn to anybody else to help, but this is a nation of hundreds of millions. So we all need to get it together and be in it together, which means once again, the responsibility of education of others to help them get right because they're the ones with the guns. They're the danger. We ain't the danger. They're the danger. So the, the, the shortest on the policy side, reduce the footprint of police on our campus, raise up the footprint of the surround services that help create the conditions for students to learn well, and absolutely, absolutely, absolutely get bullets off of our campuses. No guns on our campuses held by anybody. All right, parting thoughts, Andrew, Natasha. I'll end with the paraphrased Ella Baker quote, the black radical tradition preceded you, it will survive you. This work continues, you will die, folks will inherit this work. Do your work while you are here. Do not be daunted by the behemoth of it, right? <laughs> in this 21st century world that we live in, right? Do the work, the youth work, the building up of young people and their leadership and their education. And when you die, pass that inheritance along to them and they will continue it, I guarantee it. Um, I guess really uh, my parting words, I, I just started reading the book, My Grandmother's Hands. And in that book, the author argues that we need to, before policy, before training, we need to really do the work of understanding like ourselves, understanding our trauma and understanding like what our definition of trauma, right? Like understanding all the work around identity and self. And I think, um, I don't know if I really agree. Like, I feel like it's a yes and. I feel like, yes, we need training. Yes, we need policy. And at the same time, we do need to be looking like taking a trauma-formed approach to ourselves. And I guess um, my parting words would really to be, um, if you haven't read that book, pick it up. Like, I'm still at the beginning, but it's really good. And, and to really interrogate your beliefs and how you're upholding white supremacy um, especially as white people, like I've heard, I hear so much like being in Austin, like going into Austin, there's so much like hipster racism, right? Like I'm not racist, but stop. <laughs> like, you know, like that you need to interrogate yourself. Um, and um, I think, oh, for, for parents of color, um, and I'm speaking to all of us, any, any person, any marginalized group, I think you need to organize and we need to be taking these spaces. And I know what Ferris said, like white people do need to get on, get on the bus and come on with us. But and until, until they do, like we cannot continue to beg our oppressors to see us. Like we need to take those seats. Thank you all. This has just been an amazing panel. I feel honored 
to be in the presence of, I say this, it's black excellence, it's black leadership, um, and, and, and it's black transformational uh, efforts. And I can't tell y'all how, how much I've, I've just enjoyed being a part of the discussion today uh, and being able to be the moderator for today. Uh, I know the conversation doesn't stop here. And so encouraging everyone to make sure that you go and read the policy brief from IUPRA. Uh, it's enlightening, it's eye-opening to really get familiar with the data and think about how it shows up in your community and in your school district. Uh, and then once again, signing off, uh, Brian Oaks, um, so happy to be here today for everybody and thanks for, for listening in. I'll talk to y'all later, bye. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to this opportunity panel. Black Lives Texas is a podcast project by the Institute of Urban Policy Research and Analysis at UT Austin. This episode was edited by Mariah Gossett and additional production support by Tracy Lowe and Ricardo Lowe. Resources, more information about the speakers, and additional research is available in the show notes. Special thank you to all our panelists. The podcast will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Thank you again for listening.